Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. The people who voted conservative in those days, yes, it was partly about Brexit. Brexit was a way of kind of, um, I, I, it was important to a lot of people. But I think it was also the thing that uh, sort of tipped people over f- uh, from realising that actually maybe they weren't really Labour voters. But when they looked at what they actually valued, now they saw the world, maybe they were really Conservatives. And Brexit enabled them to kind of recognise that it's the end of an era. You know, the the last 20, 25 years of doing things is coming to an end. And people are, you know, they're they're responding in different ways, but I think a lot of people feel that. The state is the biggest it's ever been. We can't continue to see the state growing and growing and growing. And, you know, what we're seeing is that, you know, this collectivism, this statism has been reinforced by you know, the bailouts from the crash by the, the lifestyle politics imposed by climate, uh, climate politics and then by the pandemic. And all of that has reinforced the sense that, you know, statism is the right way to go. Government telling you what to do is the right way to go. And we've got to stop that. The state is bigger than it's ever been in this country. Uh, you know, government rules, influence over your own behaviour has become stronger and stronger and it, it must stop. In a free society, you've got to call halt to this. Hello and welcome to Trigonometry. I'm Francis Foster. I'm Constantine Kiss. And this is a show for you if you want honest conversations with fascinating people. Our brilliant guest today was Britain's chief negotiator with the European Union during the Brexit saga. Lord David Frost, welcome to Trigonometry. Great to be here. Thanks for having me. It is really good to have you here. Uh, We're going to get into all the issues in the conversation. Before we do, though, uh, we've got a lot of people abroad who may not know who you are. Tell everybody, who are you? What has been your journey through life that leads you to be sitting here talking to us? Yeah, um, so um, I spent much of my early life as a diplomat, professional diplomat for UK government, um, so civil servant. I, I worked as the Foreign Officer's Director for EU Affairs, lead on trade affairs, that that sort of thing. I got frustrated with being a civil servant and not being able to say what I think, so I went off to run a big trade association for a bit, Scotch Whiskey Association, which a lot of people say is the, the greatest job in the world. <laughs> Sadly, I only did it for three years uh, until Boris Johnson uh, asked me to become his uh, foreign policy EU advisor when he was foreign secretary and then as, as prime minister. And that's how I ended up doing the um, the Brexit negotiations, coming in when everything seemed to have um, uh, got stuck. I was for a time thereafter a minister in, in Boris's government until I stepped down at the end of last year over uh, because I wasn't able to support the, uh, the, the, the prospect of another lockdown. Uh, over COVID. So that's, that's where I am now. our own heart, uh, although we didn't step down from anything. Uh, but David, uh, in the interest of full disclosure for our audience, uh, you and I were speaking 
And uh, you mentioned that you'd watched or listened to our interview with Matt Goodwin, who we have a lot of time for on this show. Uh, and uh, as we were speaking about the future of the Conservative Party, you said that you had some different thoughts mm. um, about all of that. So what are they? So I think, you know, the politics has changed over the last uh, sort of 10 years or so. And as many people have said, it isn't just about economics anymore. It's it's about culture and, uh, you know, shorthand wokeism, though I hate mm. the word, you we know, where, where does that, where does that? <laughs> yeah. I, I hate it partly because I don't see how a, a past participle can become an abstract noun. And I just sort of <laughs> react against that. But um, uh, so, so it's got more complicated. And, you know, what I hear... Um, people like Matt and others saying is that it is a possible position for the Conservative Party to be in, to be sort of anti-woke in culture, but quite statist and left-wing on economic policy mm -hmm. because we've taken in red wall seats and, you know, people who used to vote Labour. And I think my view is that's a fallacy. Uh, it's a fallacy for two reasons. One, because people who vote Conservative, I think one should assume they actually want Conservative policies until it's, it's kind of proved otherwise. Second, I think the, 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 the choice, the, these are different kinds of choices. The choice between sort of wokeism and non-wokeism, if you like, is a kind of political choice. You know, I, I happen to think one is better than the other, but it's basically about your worldview and how you want society to run. The choice between do you have free market economic policies or do you have more statist economic policies is a real world thing. We know in the real world, free market policies tend to reduce more prosperity, more growth, better outcomes than others. So if you, if you just look at this as a political thing and say, you know, our, our, the way politics has evolved means that it's sensible for us as a Conservative Party to take on left-wing policies, you're actually condemning yourself to ideological and actual defeat because you're choosing an economy that isn't going to grow as fast. And people are not going to like that. So that's why I think politics about persuasion, politics about encouraging people to, um, uh, you know, kind of take on your worldview. And we should be standing up for free market, liberal policies focused on growth, focused on productivity, focused on the productive capacity of this country and persuading people they are the best policies. And that I hope we're beginning to do that now, actually. But isn't the problem, David, that the Conservatives had a huge majority in the 2019 general election because they promised, in their own words, to get Brexit done, which, to be fair, you did. And you have all these red wall seats who aren't naturally Conservative. Therefore, you have MPs representing these people who want more left-wing policies because they're more economically disadvantaged, mm. thus creating an imbalance in the party. Because if the MP for... A, a, a red wall seat doesn't represent their constituents and their desires, they're going to lose their seat and they're going to be out of a job. But I, I, so I think um, the people who voted Conservative in those seats, yes, it was partly about Brexit. Brexit was a way of kind of, um, I, I, it was important to a lot of people, yeah, rightly so. Mm -hmm. But I think it was also the thing that uh, sort of tipped people over fr uh, from realising that 
actually, maybe they weren't really Labour voters. They were doing it for historical, traditional, other reasons. But when they looked at what they actually valued, now they saw the world, maybe they were really Conservatives. And Brexit enabled them to kind of recognise that. We sh- you know, we shouldn't forget that Mrs Thatcher won a lot of red wall seats in 1983. She held on to them in 1987. It's not quite as new as some people say that we've we've had these these supporters. And she won them with an appeal to uh, to free markets, running your own life, um, freeing yourself from the shackles of state housing, state benefits, people telling you what to do all the time. And I think that appeal is is just as strong nowadays. And we, we need to lean into it and bring people into that support group, not, not be embarrassed about it. I completely agree with you. But if you look at what the Conservative policies have been over the last couple of years, as in not telling people what to do and no state involvement, I mean... Yeah, we vote. I mean, the government voted Conservative. They got left of Corbyn, didn't they? In many ways. I, we've. I'm the last person to defend the economic record of the last last couple of years. Yeah. I think it's you know it's well known that I, I I resigned in part because of it. I think you know we we are people make the comparison with the 1970s quite often, and I think one of the reasons that's correct is that it's the end of an era. You know, the the last 20, 25 years of doing things is coming to an end. And people are, you know, they're they're responding in different ways. But I think a lot of people feel that. And, you know, what we're seeing is that, you know, this collectivism, this statism has been reinforced by, you know, the bailouts for the crap from the crash, by the the lifestyle politics imposed by climate, uh, climate politics, and then by the pandemic. And all of that has reinforced the sense that, you know, statism is the right way to go. Government telling you what to do is the right way to go. And we've got to stop that. The state is bigger than it's ever been in this country. Uh, You know, government rules, influence over your own behaviour has become stronger and stronger. And it, it must stop. In a free society, you've got to call halt to this at some point. You do, but... Isn't the problem as well when you've got a population who become used to the big state that the moment you start taking it away, you're going to threaten, you know, your own chance of being reelected because all of a sudden you're going to become the mean, nasty Tories who are only interested in big business. And let's be fair, has Trump, uh, not Trump, sorry, has trust. Made a bit There's of, a slip. There's, yeah, <laughs> and, and then you've got trust, basically, you know, with bankers, bankers, bonuses, etc. Well, I mean, ideally, you would be doing this at the start of a four or five year Mm. term. And for reasons we know about that, that hasn't been possible. There's only two years or so left. Mm. Um, But, you know, I still think you've got to do the right things. If if we're going to go down to defeat, let's at least do it having had the argument, done what we said was the right thing, tried to to persuade people rather than half-heartedly doing things we don't really believe in, in a belief that it might keep everybody happy. People can recognise intellectual confidence and authenticity, I think, mm-hmm. and it appeals to, to people. Yes. So let's let's lean into that. Let's do the things we believe in and believe will work. And I think they will work. I, I think, you know, two years is long enough to start seeing some of the results of this. But we have to have intellectual confidence. We have to start talking about... Um, you know, the role of profits, the role of a normal interest rate in a capitalist economy, the things that make it work and be honest about this, not not be embarrassed about it. 
Are you tired of using bulky old wallets, giving you a bulge where you don't want it to be? My old wallet was massive, so it brought all the ladies to the yard, which was a huge distraction and got in the way of my esteemed work on trigonometry. Ridge wallets have an incredible solution for you. This is mine, sleek, stylish, and with an industrial look to it. It can fit 12 cards with cash on the back using a clip like this one or a strap. We've got one for the whole team. I've got one, Francis has one, even our producer Anton has one, but he's from Liverpool, so he flogged his on the black market. The great thing about Ridge is that they give you a lifetime guarantee, which means if you want, you can have only one wallet for the rest of your life. Ridge are so confident in the quality of their product, they will give you 45 days to test drive their wallets. That means you can get the wallet, use it, and if you don't like it, you can return it within 45 days. And that's not all. For every dollar you spent on the Ridge Wallets website, you'll be entered into a competition to win a brand new upgraded Ford Bronco. Or if you can't drive like Francis, then you can win $75,000 in cash. Winners will be announced in October, so get spending. spending. Because Ridge are such great guys, they're gonna give you 10% off and free worldwide shipping and returns. To take advantage of this incredible offer, go to ridge.com forward slash trigger. That's ridge.com forward slash trigger and use our special code, which is of course, trigger. David, I think you, you you put your finger on something that is obviously very important, particularly in terms of your comparison with Thatcher. And I, I imagine as someone who used to be this country's chief negotiator with the EU, even though you're very softly spoken, you must know how to carry a big stick too. <laughs> However, in the current prime minister's situation, it must be extraordinarily difficult to, yes, yeah, she speaks confidently and softly at the same time, but how do you carry a stick when you've got no mandate whatsoever? That is is difficult. I, I wouldn't say we've got no mandate because, you know, that is the way our system works. It's not the first time the Prime Minister's changed midterm and people accept that's that's part of the way the system works. I think, you know, you've just got to have this trust, the team have got to have intellectual confidence and, and say, you know, be honest about the the, the mistakes were made in the last couple of years. Be honest about where things have gone wrong. Be clear that things are going to a different direction. Say, judge us in a couple of years. Mm. If you don't like it, obviously, the, there is there is another route. But mm. to be clear, make sure people understand what uh, what we're trying to do and why and what the, the goal is. I think that's the crucial thing at the moment. People are just not being talk to honestly for so long about things and we can change well, that i agree with you on that I, I really do hope we change that um and i suppose this morning you came in you were quite chipper uh <laughs> you uh, we're as we're recording this it'll be a few days before it goes out uh the chancellor the new chancellor was just announcing i mean i don't think many people would have expected uh, who are the general public who are not you know obsessed with politics like the three of us would have expected that in this current climate, the thing that the government would be doing is slashing taxes, uh, abolishing the top rate of tax next year, and all of the other things that are now happening. You, you must be delighted. Yeah, I think it's absolutely the right thing to do. Um, we must get things, we must get the economy onto a different path. We've got to change expectations. Yes, it's going, to, you know, the, the, there's going to be a, 
uh, an uplift in borrowing in the short run. But we must get people thinking that we are trying to improve the productive capacity of this economy. We've got to get investors, people who look at this country saying, yeah, the Brits get, get it. They can't do everything straight away, but they understand what needs to be done and they're getting on the right path. And there needs to be that sort of psychological shock, change of expectations, belief things can get get better. And I think that's what um, the Chancellor was trying to deliver today. I actually believe that, you know, in the capitalist economy, you need you need interest rates that are above zero. I think they're going to have to go up further, not just to control inflation, but because that's how the economy works. Mm. Um, we probably are going to have to see a lower pound because that's that we need to be on a different forward curve. And to support the economy, it's right to do a bit of borrowing and tax cuts so that demand doesn't collapse. And I think this is a perfectly rational way forward. Um, and all the sort of world-weary economists who are out there saying, what about borrowing? What about this? What about that? It's irresponsible. What do the Treasury officials think of it all? I just think that is, that is, they're still talking a story that is irrelevant to the challenges that face the country after Brexit mm. and in this new world. And well, I do agree with you, but I am one of those, not economists, but certainly world wary in terms of the amount of borrowing. But I think we have to distinguish between different types of borrowing. If you're borrowing on a credit card to go and have a, a night out, that's one thing. If you're borrowing to build a business, that's yeah. completely different. And this brings me to the two issues that Francis and I talk about all the, all the time, which is we've borrowed to pay people to stay at home. Before that, we borrowed to pay bankers to stay afloat. What about the housing crisis? What about infrastructure in this country? Because I've got no problem borrowing more money to do those things, to create jobs and to get the economy moving. Are we going to get those two issues solved with just cutting taxes and allowing some people would argue money just to accumulate at the top with no productive activity being generated it can only be the first step you know this is about changing expectations and making people believe that things can be better and the economy can improve i think the government has announced today some you know, some improvements to or at least prospect some improvements to infrastructure uh, getting it through quicker let's see what that looks like it is really important obviously the housing market is a massive massive problem in this this country and um you know, it's a huge part of the productivity problem. I think not being able to move house is, is obviously part part of that. We're going to have to build more houses. There's there's no two ways about around that. That we're going to have to build houses in places where people don't want houses to be built, and we're going to have to find a way of making that that possible. Um, I think it is more possible than people believe, uh, but it's going to have to be done. And, uh, you know, I hope the government is going to take this on in the enterprise zones elsewhere. I'm not hearing, uh, forgive me, but um, I'm hearing we're going to have to as opposed to that's what's going to happen. I, do you believe it's going to happen? I believe it is going to happen, actually. I don't necessarily think it's going to happen like tomorrow mm -hmm. uh, because sequencing is important and getting people used to ideas is important. And I think one of the... The problems we've had, actually, one of the consequences of this sort of collectivism over the last 20 years is that people have not been 
prepared for the scale of the challenge that, that has to come. We've, we've not talked about how market economies work. We've not talked about what that means for your own individual prospects, how you have to prepare yourself, how you have to skill, uh, you know, how all this sort of thing. We've just not talked about it. So you can't, I think, suddenly land people with a, a million things that are a completely different worldview and expect people to put up with it. We have to allow some time for persuasion, for getting people used to ideas, for testing things and showing that actually it isn't so bad, maybe, when you do this. Hopefully fracking, for example, is going to be one of those things. Mm. And, and gradually change the debate. So you shouldn't rush at everything. I think the crucial thing is also to have a really convincing manifesto for the next election that is based on a real story mm -hmm. uh, for which you can get a real mandate to do some actually difficult things. And some of that you've got to prepare for. You can't just do it all straight away. But isn't also the problem as well, David, is that, you know, a lot, you, know you get a lot of these conservative voters who are NIMBYs, mm. not in my backyard. Yeah. And also, you know, a lot of them own property, you are essentially, if you're going to build large swathes of housing to solve this crisis, and it is a crisis, you're essentially devaluing their assets, aren't you? Well, it, that is a that is a risk. I mean, it, you know, there is so much um, uh, pressure in the housing market, particularly in southern England, that uh, you know it take, it's going to take a lot to to sort of devalue uh, people's assets over a sort of sustained period. I think you know we're really just talking about keeping a lid on things and hoping that you know inflation and growth you know kind of enable people to catch up over time. Uh, so I think people are more worried than they need be probably about this. But but I think you know people like me. People, you know, who have benefited from the boom, uh, the illusory boom, actually, mm -hmm, in many mm -hmm, ways, of the last mm -hmm. 20 years, um, have got to accept that, uh, you know, we have an intergenerational responsibility and part of that is getting more houses built, even if there's, there's a cost. I just think that is part of the story that has to be told. To me, it's one of the biggest problems with our society because we talk about wokeism or progressivism or however you want to describe it, but how can you possibly expect young people to be conservative or to adopt conservative values when they literally have nothing to conserve? They rent a, a, a one-bedroom flat in Hackney for the best part of two grand a month. Yeah. Well, I I, I, I couldn't agree with you more. Um, you know, the we we have to. There's been so much, so many imbalances for so long in in asset prices and mm. the asset market, housing market generally. Um, it's going to take a long time to to unwind this. The pressures are so great. I mean, it's, you you already there's a huge benefit from setting up a business in Northern England, buying a house in Northern England. It's already a lot lot cheaper than in boom areas of the south. Yet people don't do it. The pressures are still to come to this house. It's going to take a lot. To, to reverse that, but you have to start somewhere and you have to start giving people a, a feeling that uh, you know, if they work, if they do save, actually it's a worthwhile thing to do and not mm. completely pointless thing to do, mm. which is, is how people feel at the moment, I think. Yeah, that's not untrue. And Francis and I, again, uh, as trigonometry becomes a small business, we have staff, we, have, we pay tax, all of these things. You, you know, you go to America and you kind of realize like it's not that easy to run a business in Britain. It's not that easy to do these things because there are a lot of taxes to pay. There's lots of rules to follow. There's lots of boxes to tick, all of these things. So I get that. But David, um, 
this is what I want to ask you because a lot of the people who watch our show uh, in from the UK will be those red wall uh, people, some of whom will absolutely agree with you. I can think of several of our supporters who already will be on your side. But there will be a lot of people also who, as we've talked about, uh, we've had a, a long period of time now where if there's a problem, government's the answer. Hmm. What is the economic argument at its core that you're making about the free market the, the, and you know, le- reducing regulation, reducing taxes? Why is that better? How does that work? How does the, you mentioned the economy, this is how it works. Explain that at a very basic level for us. Why is your view of how the economy should be managed better? That people make better choices for themselves. They, they Obviously, you need a, a framework, and the state sets the framework, but basically, people know better themselves what they want to do and how they want to live their lives and where they want to spend their money and what they want to spend it on um, than uh, the government does. And where the government tries to do it, it tends to get it wrong. It imposes its own judgments on people. It makes them do things they wouldn't otherwise choose to do. It accepts. It sets up a a single view of the good society which you're forced to buy into uh, and you have to live by the government rules. And I think that historically has been shown not to work uh, where it's been tried. Now, you know, nobody's going to try in the extreme forms in this country, although, you know, during the pandemic there were mm. there, there were some quite extreme things happening. But if you allow people to make their own decisions you know, accumulate money for themselves and their their families, live their lives as they, they, they want to, they'll make better decisions, they'll invest, they'll become more prosperous. That's the, the fundamental core, I think, of this. Uh, I hear you. And from where I'm sitting, the obvious and very easy way to attack your argument is to say, but what about the people who can't help themselves? What about the disabled? What about the people who are chronically ill? Every time we reduce the size of the state, yes, you know, we unleash the, the brilliance of billionaires and millionaires in this country to build businesses, even if we are that charitable to your argument. But the people who really suffer are the people living in deprived communities, people who are, like I say, rely on the NHS to survive, people who are disabled in mentally or physically. All of these people surely will suffer as we reduce the size of the state, would be the argument. Well, I, I, everybody would agree that the state should you know, be generous to, to people who can't work for, for whatever reason it is. Um, the problem is that um, we have, over the years, got a state system that is, is much more generous than that. And that's, that's kind of undermining support for it and under, under, for a lot of people. The universal credit system, for example, you can claim universal credit um, if you're you know, on the average wage. And you know, in what sense is that a kind of benefit uh, for people who can't help themselves? It's a, it's a big, complex system that funnels money from one part of the economy to, to another. And in so doing, it's undermining support for state transfers as a whole. It's making people who have no need to be dependent uh, upon the state. Uh, of course, we must help people who can't help themselves. Um, the government's actually not very good at that, uh, it seems to me, in many ways, and uh, focusing on that would be would be a better thing to do. 
you know, people, people have forgotten, I think, that the state is the biggest it's ever been. We can't continue to see the state growing and growing and growing um, because we think it's the right thing to do. We, you have to draw a line somewhere and focus the state back down on its core tasks. Under Tony Blair, the state was you know, 5% GDP smaller than now. Everyone seems to think Tony Blair time was quite a good time and, you know, people who I don't agree with politically quite quite liked it. And, you know, life went on, even though the state was a lot smaller. You can get it smaller. You can focus down on the, on the, the core tasks. I, I agree with you that it does need to be smaller because at the moment it's economically unsustainable and it's not really a conversation that we want to have. And the big elephant in the room to me is the NHS, which is becoming more and more unfit for purpose when you see how much money is being ploughed into it. And yet the ordinary person struggles to get a GP appointment. <laughs> the waiting list, I don't know however many millions it goes, seems to go up by a million every week or something ridiculous like that. And people waiting to get cancer appointments, checkups, it, it, it doesn't work, does it? It Let's doesn't. It, do, it doesn't, uh, or it works in a very sort of crude, um, inefficient fashion. And that's what you get when you, you know, you've got one and a half million people and a budget of 160 billion a year all run from the centre. You know, inevitably, you get these, these outcomes. And I, I mean, I'm encouraged that I think for the first time in my political life, I suppose, we've, we're beginning to hear people say, actually, this isn't working very well. I don't like it that I can't get to my GP. I don't like the fact there's a waiting list. Every time, you know, when I go into hospital, I see a different person every day. They lose my papers. I'm not confident. They're not giving me, you know, they're giving me the right drugs. You hear this kind of all the time from people's day-to-day experience. And there's only so long, I think, that people can hold the day-to-day experience in parallel with the the sort of religious belief about the the system. In the end, one undermines the other. And I hope we're beginning to to see that. I think actually also people have, you know, lots of people have got experience of the European systems now, whether they live in Europe or have uh, visited it. They've seen what it's like to get treatment somewhere other than the NHS, and they don't think it's that bad necessarily. And I I think it's beginning to kind of permeate through. So the problem is that you can't change the NHS overnight. Uh, You know, it is the task of a generation, really, to to change this this monolith. You've got to start somewhere. You've got to stop adding new tasks. You should take off some of the sort of frivolities that people should pay for themselves. And I think gradually you've got to try and bring in some sort of market insurance elements out the margins probably first and get it working in a more functional way. But that's going to take 20 years uh, if you started today, uh, I think. And that's why people shy away. Um, What do you mean by the frivolities, David? What what are we talking about with the word frivolities? Well, uh, sort of lifestyle surgery, maybe. You know, I don't know, some people would say IVF, for example, mm-hmm. people should pay for themselves. I mean, I think there's a debate to be had about that. But I think all at the moment, all the pressure is the other way, that you know, new kind of things get added into uh, NHS treatment all the time. And, um, you know, again, you've got to draw the line somewhere mm-hmm. or not. I'm not making a direct comparison here, but if you look at like veterinary services, for example, completely private service, obviously, and nobody's suggesting we should do that. But there is no shortage 
you can get to see a vet kind of tomorrow because the market works. And um, in the NHS, we have no market meaningfully at all. The only uh, uh, sort of sorting system is by queue, and that's that's what happens. So you, you've got to try and bring elements of rationality into it, I think. And, and what would you say to those people who go, look, if we do that, what we're going to become is effectively the United States where... You know, people are essentially made bankrupt every time they get diagnosed with cancer. Cancer treatments cost tens of thousands of dollars, if not hundreds of thousands. How do we stop that from happening? So I think that there is always this um, artificial comparison made between um, as if the only two models are our model and the US model. And, um, uh, you know, it, it, it bedevils the debate we have on this. Actually, you know, people need to get that we are the outlier. Hardly anybody runs their health service like we do, with virtually everything being delivered by government. The only countries that do are the Scandinavians and the Irish, much smaller countries where you don't have this sort of massive monolith problem that we do uh, in the UK that's 10 times as big. The norm in an advanced country is to have some sort of in social insurance system, quite a lot of um, competition, quite a lot of private provision in the system, and a lot more patient and consumer choice. That is the international norm uh, across Europe, and we could go there. So let's break that down. What does that actually mean, a social insurance system? Because I'm sure there's people watching and listening to this thinking, what, 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 like Bupa? Is that a social insurance system? Well, not really, because it's, it's kind of outside the system altogether. What we're seeing at the moment, I think, uh, and we've seen quite a lot in the last year or two, is that we're getting two systems in this country. We've got the NHS that uh, doesn't work, and then you've got a completely private system, which is totally separated from it. There's no sort of tax benefit or any other kind. It's entirely for people who've got the ability to, to pay for it. However, you do get treatment quickly. Um, the way the European, most European systems work, and they're, they're all kind of different, so there's no single model, but that there is a, a sort of compulsory insurance element. You know, you join maybe one of a number of insurance schemes. You can choose the level at which you, you, you go into these schemes. Um, quite a lot of the provision is contracted for by these schemes or sometimes by the government, private clinics, private doctors, whatever. Um, but the whole system is backed up by the government. It's still largely free at the point of use, but it's not run by the government. And there's much more efficiency in the way treatment happens. And, you know, you simply, you know, apart from the special case after the pandemic, you simply don't get these sort of massive waiting lists in many European countries that that we do here. And if people understood that, I think they'd be more open. Well, that is actually something, uh, just as an aside, because I want to move on, but that is something I think people in this country really don't understand is how extraordinary it is that as a wealthy country, you have a, a healthcare system where you have to wait. You have to wait at all. Uh, I mean, in Russia or Ukraine or countries that I've grown up in, the, the notion that you would wait for an appointment to see your doctor, it, it, yeah. it's absurd. Yes. It's I, absurd. I agree. It's completely absurd. Yeah. So, I mean, I hear you on that one. Uh, I want to move on, though, David, because uh, coming right back to the beginning of our conversation and Matt Goodwin sitting here, one mm. of the things that he talked about, and I hear Nigel Farage talking about this quite extensively, uh, essentially 
Nigel Farage's argument is because of what's happening with immigration now, the people who will fill the space that he's vacated will be, in his words, I think, far less pleasant to the chattering classes than even he was. Yeah. And I think it's fair to say that when people voted to, quote, unquote, take back control of the borders, they did not vote for immigration to increase as it did under your former boss. And they certainly did not vote for thousands of people to come into this country illegally every month. What is, what is the new prime minister going to do about this? So I think um, it is really important, uh, first of all, to um, that the state works properly. And this is one of the areas where it needs to, to work properly. So although I'm often caricatured as a kind of, you know, crazed free marketeer of, of some kind, actually, I think it is really important to see the two things in parallel. The, the private economy, the market economy needs to work in a free market way, but the state also needs to work properly and be properly funded. And uh, that means things like controlling the borders properly. It means proper law and order, police on the streets, a justice system that works and prisons that aren't a sort of you know, disgrace, frankly, to a civilised society. Uh, it means the benefits working properly in the way that we were, we were talking about earlier. So, you know, there definitely is a big role for a state. Uh, the problem is, it's, again, it's taking on more and more it, it kind of frivolous tasks the whole time, getting distracted from its core duties, and that's what that's what it's got to do. So that's the the context. And um, um, on the immigration thing, I mean, I I, I think immigration must come down. Uh, it's not sort of straightforward to look at this year on year because you don't control the number of people who leave the country for one thing. So they're always kind of. Mm. The, you know, the, the, the graph will always um, vary year on year. It's the overall trend you've got to look at. The truth is our economy has um, uh, benefited from or has, has... We've developed an economic model that's been based on lots of cheap labour from Europe for the last 20, 25 years. You can't turn that off overnight. Um, I don't think we should turn that off overnight uh, given there's so many other economic problems going going on. But I do think we have to set a trajectory that is down and be clear that it's going to go down and set that in a in a credible way. And the problem again at the moment is that over the last year we've talked tough about immigration, but actually the numbers have, you know, if anything, gone up. I think it's not entirely clear because of course not every European would have shown up in the system beforehand. Um, but nevertheless, it remains high and it has to come down. We have to move to a different model where business adjusts to the fact that th there isn't an indefinite supply of free labour and invests in the people they've, they've got. But that is going to take a bit of time. Okay, th that's the first part. But the other part, and this is something I can tell you, something you already know, illegal immigration pisses people off like nothing else. And it pisses people like me off, who are first-generation immigrants, came to this country, followed the process, a process that isn't always pleasant or fair or cheap or whatever, right? But I don't think, I, I think that one of the defining features of this country is the sense of fairness. And I don't understand 
th how people in, in politics seem to not understand or how crucial addressing that issue is. Because, and it's not because, contrary to what people like to say, that it's about racism or xenophobia or whatever it is. I think it's about fairness. People don't feel that anyone should come into this country illegally. I totally agree. And yeah. we have thousands yeah. of people coming in and we have no idea who they are. As well, there's a security dimension to this. There's a fairness dimension. I mean, you can look at it in many different ways. How, how first of all, how is it even possible that what six years on from Brexit, there are people coming here in in boats from war-torn France? How how is that happening? So, I mean, it is an incredibly complicated question, and I think Boris Boris Johnson got blamed unfairly actually for not caring about this problem. I know he, he really did try and had meetings sort of every two or three days on the subject for a lot of the time I was there in number 10. It was not for want of trying or thinking this was not a, a problem. It was because it is an extremely intractable problem. And there is the practical problem that, you know, when people are coming over in a small unseaworthy boat, you, you, you know, kind of common humanity means you've got to handle them in a, in a certain way. The French won't take them back. Therefore, you end up having to sort of bring them into the UK where they're then surrounded by the panoply of um, uh, sort of legal protections, judicial reviews, the, uh, you know, amateurish and slow way we run our asylum system that, that produces an incentive to, to come here and, and risk it. So there are lots of things that, that need changing. Um, I think the, you know, the, the, the government is going to have to get more robust uh, on this. I think it's going to have to say, you know, if you come here uh, illegally, you don't get the right to stay. You have to work out what the consequences of, of that are. And I think it's going to have to take on the ECHR issue. The ECHR, um, Convention of Human Rights, is, is part of the, is, is the ultimate reason why there are so many legal challenges, so many um, problems uh, in the legal framework that we've got. And I think we're going to have to try and cut through that in some way in the next couple of years. I can't see how we can solve this problem without doing that. Hey, Francis, do you like ideas? Of course I do. My favourite idea was getting that Chinese takeaway last night. I was talking about important ideas, ideas that matter. So was I. That lemon chicken was... Well, there's the battle of ideas. Ooh, is that a competition between the best takeaways? Because I know which one would definitely win. Right, if I promise to buy you some lemon chicken, will you shut up and do this ad with me? Sir, yes, sir. The battle of ideas is a free speech festival which is held in Church House in London on the 15th and 16th of October. They have a wide and diverse range of speakers from across the political spectrum who debate the most important issues facing our society. I'll be there in conversation about my book, An Immigrant's Love Letter to the West. And Francis is doing a panel as well. Whatever issue you're most passionate about, you'll find it discussed at the Battle of Ideas. They have panels that will debate everything from big tech, education, the arts, and free speech. Plus, the audience gets a chance to ask the panel questions as well. Like, what's their favorite Chinese? No! Click on the link in the description and use the code TRIGGER22 to get 13% off. That's right. Click on the link in the description 
Use the code TRIGGER22 and get 13% off. We'll see you at the Battle of Ideas in London. Oh, and there's also a great Chinese round. Cut! Like Nigel said, the, the problem is, is that if this, if this issue isn't being dealt with, then what you get is what I call, you know, the Tommy Robinson factor, where you get somebody unpleasant who comes along, points at a, an issue like grooming gangs and goes, they're not doing anything, they're not listening to you, they don't care. Yeah. But I do, and I will. Yeah. And that's a real danger for that, our democracy. 100% agree. That's that's why it's so important the, you know, the state gets, gets a grip on it. Yeah. And, you know, there are lots of... There are lots of reasons why it doesn't. They're, mm. they're, they're partly bureaucratic, they're partly kind of cultural, mm. I think, the, why the police don't tackle some of these, these issues. And, and they go, go quite deep. But, you know, you can't, you can't stop people caring about things. Mm. And if the government doesn't respond mm. to their concerns, then other people will mm. respond to them. And that's just the way it is. And mm. government has to accept that. Because if let's say Labour win the election, which is perfectly possible in the next couple of years, that, that could well happen. I mean, they're going to be even worse at dealing with this situation than Conservatives. Yeah, I think so, because they don't have any of the sort of presumptions about how these things should work. I mm -hmm. mean, they just will not have the will to tackle it uh, in any way. And we know you know, a good chunk of the, the modern Labour Party, the membership, not not the supporters, I think, for the membership, you know, don't really believe in borders at all. They don't really believe in the nation state as a concept uh, at all. And, you know, there's no way they're going to be able to tackle this. I really fear for things, actually, in those circumstances. Do you think that this two-tier party system, do you think it's it's got a future? Because there's lots of people making perfectly valid criticisms about it, David, and going, who do the Conservatives represent? Who do Labour represent? I, I mean, I think every party's, um, every country's sort of political system is is determined by um, stuff that's quite deep in the way mm. the country works. And I don't think you can just change bits of it without having all kinds of unintended consequences. I mean, we, the Fixed Term Parliament Act's a good example of, mm -hmm. of that, where mm -hmm. it, it was it was a bit bolted on from a PR-type system and it never worked. Mm -hmm. and, and in the end, we've, we've had to get rid of it. I, I mean, I think the... The advantages of our system, so a short version is, yes, I think it can and should survive. Um, the advantage of it is that um, it forces parties to be coalitions themselves. They can't become so ideological and, you know, just just re respond to a very small niche of people. Mm. They have to sort of have these, these sort of debates. And the single-member constituency means people don't get, you know, it's not possible to get completely out of touch with what, people are thinking in the way that in some of the European PR systems where you're on a list and you never meet an ordinary voter, mm. you just sort of lose lose touch. Mm. Um, so I think it, you know, every system has the problems of its advantages, but, but I think ours is the right one for us. Because you do need fringe parties in many ways to hold the bigger parties to account, like the Brexit party really needed to hold the Conservative Party's feet to the fire to make sure that what people voted for was enacted. Yeah, it, it did. And, um, 
you know, but I, I think that was a sort of freak situation in some ways. Um, uh, you know, it destroyed the Conservative Party briefly in those European elections in yeah. 2019. We were down to whatever it was, 9% nationally. Um, but it was a freak situation. The Constitution was breaking down. Uh, you know, a lot of the norms had just were on hold. Um, but, but you know, UKIP, uh, you know, arguably took enough out of the Conservative vote to um, force the referendum uh, when it was announced in 2013. So, so yeah, they, they have a function in the system, but, but I don't think, I still think it's better for democracy to have, you know, a couple of big parties that represent world, different world views. Mm. The problem with systems like that is when you get two parties that think the same thing mm. about important issues like climate change, the obvious example recently, or to a large extent the pandemic, then there's no debate. That, that, that's the problem. So they have got to represent different views about things properly. Right. And uh, I, well, I was actually going to move on to, to global stuff, but speaking of uh, climate change uh, and net zero, uh, what is, in your opinion, the future of that issue under the current uh, Tory regime? So I think, um, you know, I think... Is it going to be a slash and burn we're going to abandon net zero entirely. I doubt it yeah. um, because it's pretty well embedded as a as a target now, um, twenty fifty. Um, but I do think that you know, I, a lot of people think that we're rushing at it too fast and doing it in a way that you know makes no sense. That just deprives us of actual energy to power our economy, and you know, going at it in a way where um, government picks the route you know, and all this sort of stuff about heat pumps and electric cars and all this this kind of thing. Um, you know, government picking winners never works. If you're going to do this, the, the rational way would be to have a carbon tax and just increase it a bit every year and let the market sort out what the best way of doing it was. Um, I don't know whether we'll, we'll do that, but I think we will see much more focus on energy security, mm -hmm. on energy cost, mm -hmm. than on the so-called climate impact. I mean, I just don't think we're in a climate emergency. So I don't think this thing is as urgent <laughs> as people say. The one emergency we are in is the one that you refer to, because I think particularly in the aftermath of the Russian invasion of Ukraine, energy security, food security, and border security, these issues which we all pretended were not issues for quite a long time, I think, ideologically, uh, they've now come to the fore. Uh, and uh, the the current prime minister and we as a country for, for a long time are going to have to reckon with all of this. Um, the world is decoupling, it's deglobalizing. Uh, how, how best to approach our role in that world for Britain? Yeah, I think we... You know, it's, it's, it's the cliche, you know, we lost an empire, we didn't find a role, now we've lost the European Union and we're still looking around for uh, a kind of international role. I, I think we tend to underplay ourselves as a as a country. I think people look at Britain in the from the outside much more than we, we realize. A hundred percent. I can promise you that. When I speak to people where I'm from about Britain, their view of Britain is much more they see Britain and value it much higher than than we do in this country. Yeah, I, I, that's my experience. And you know, yeah. when I was a uh, as a diplomat, I think um, you know we are still a pretty big economy. We still stand for some important things. I think our you know the the 
I think it should be about resilience to a very large extent. Um, we're going to have to push up defence spending. We're going to have to uh, try and revive NATO properly as a, a sort of serious security and defence organisation. We've got things like the AUKUS Pact with the, the Australians and the Indo-Pacific tilt that I think is going to be important as we, we, we sort of try and deter China. I think we... You know, one of the things that I find people do react against a bit is, you know, we can be a bit preachy about things. Mm. And I, I kind of, I don't like our embassies going, you know, sort of endless to go on demonstrations about this and that fashionable cause. I think, you know, you've got to look at the world as it is a bit. And, you know, sometimes that means dealing with people who you don't necessarily like very much or approve of everything they do, but they've got stuff that you need. So you've got to, that's just the way the world is. So a bit more realism about the world, a bit less preachiness, um, but, you know, a bit sort of standing up for things that we, we believe in. I, I think Britain is a force for good, um, but we've got to put the money into showing that, uh, I would say. And we, that's just beginning, really, this new, this new role. Yeah, I agree with you. We do need to do that. The problem is, David, is, is you look at the kids coming out of universities, you know, they on the whole seem to be very sceptical, sceptical, seem to be very anti-British, this constant focus on empire. And look, you know, and it, as somebody who has just read a little bit about it, obviously we weren't angels, but no empire is. You know, people think that what, the Ottomans were woke. Yeah. So the problem is, is that we talk about this, and I think we can all agree on that, but you look at the younger generations coming through the universities, and you look at people who are more on the left in the Labour Party, they think completely differently. I mean, how, how, how do we unify this country? Yeah, I think it is. A, I mean, it's gone a long, uh, we've gone a long way down this road. Mm -hmm. yeah. uh, that's the problem. Um, and I think one of the, the consequences of, you know, the fact people in their 20s, 30s, maybe even 40s don't have a stake is in society, you know, don't have a house, maybe defer having kids till they're a bit late to this yep. sort of thing, is that they they can sort of live in a world of kind of illusions of, you know, how the world is and how it works for a bit longer yes. than they yeah. used to, to be able to. And that that is part of, of what we're seeing. You know, there's a kind of um, sort of fantasy world being created about how it works and how we got here and what is important to Western civilization and advanced economy. And, you know, I actually think it's time for the government and people like us to be, you know, even more assertive about that. So I thought, you know, your your book, Constant, is great on this subject. This is, this is what has made us, this is what is important in a Western society. Keep telling yourself about it because otherwise people start to think different things but it's it's very difficult when university like i said before is telling these kids that we're evil and we're wrong yeah i, I it's gone very deeply and i you know one of the this whole sort of um assault on western culture and history and and so on one of the questions i ask myself and i haven't heard people answer is you know, why is it happening um, you know, there, there is what has driven it. How have we got to this point? Um, and I see, you know, there are kind of two answers. I think one is that 
there's a bunch of sort of cultural Marxists, you know, going through the institutions trying to um, destroy Western society in the universities and so on. And the other is that this is just liberalism sort of pushed to its nth degree. As you knock over one taboo, you look mm. for another taboo. In order to stop that looking kind of absurd, you have to create this sort of alternative reality so that things don't look absurd. And there is, you know, the sort of net emperor, new clothes thing can can survive. And I think that's actually more what we're seeing, that the kind of liberalism, um, social liberalism, mm. that, you know, kind of started in the 60s mm. uh, in universities, in the intellectual classes, has just been pushed and pushed and pushed. Mm so that there are no taboos left. Mm. And that doesn't mean it was wrong to do what happened in the 60s, but it does mean that sensible people have got to say, you're pushing this too far. Mm. The world isn't like this. Mm. Uh, it's like this. Yeah. And, and just be more honest about that. Uh, David, I wish we could talk for longer, but we're not as good negotiators as you said. <laughs> so the deal we did with the builders across the road that they would stop building for a while is now expired. <laughs> uh, and uh, we're going to have to ask you our final question and wrap up. Um, what is the one thing that we're not talking about that we really should be? So I think it's, it's, not so, it's a subject that we, we are talking about a bit, but not enough. And it's about devolution and the union of this this country. I think there is far too great an acceptance that um, the country has divided up or is divided up into four different units. We're in a sort of confederation because it uh, is kind of convenient to everybody, but it could be different. Um, and meanwhile, we should let Scotland and Wales kind of do their own thing and not worry too much about it. And, uh, you know, I think it's hard to get people in England to kind of care about what's happening in Scotland and increasingly in Wales, which seems to be going down the same road now. Um, and I, I, I think we've got to have an honest conversation about, you know, where devolution has has taken us, is undermining the the kind of unity of this nation state and you know you go to germany go to france go to italy they they would regard the kind of debate we have about the, the you know the the different components of this country is entirely bizarre mm. the, you know the idea you could just detach and go a different way um would be quite wrong so i think we need you know it's very difficult people don't like um Every time you, you sort of tell the SNP or the Welsh Labour Party that it can't be like this, you get this sort of torrent of, of you know, pushback. But we've got to have, start having this, this conversation again. Mm. This is a unitary nation state. Devolution is one thing. A path to independence is a different thing. And we've got to start pulling it back together again. It was incredible to me that... Um, we essentially devolved our travel policy, who could come in and out of the country during the pandemic, to the Scottish and Welsh governments who seem to be allowed to do their own thing. Nobody thought that was what devolution was about, and it shouldn't be what it's about. And we've got to pull that back. It will be very uncomfortable, but I think it needs to be done. Lord David Frost. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you. It's been great. Enjoyed it. And thank you guys for watching and listening. We will see you very soon with another brilliant episode like this one or Raw Show. All of them go out at 7 p.m. UK time. Thank you.
What are you most proud of achieving with the Brexit negotiations? And is there anything you wish you could have achieved but didn't? Before you go, consider joining our exclusive member feed. As a member, you'll get ad-free and extended interviews. Click the membership link in the podcast description or find the exclusive episodes link on your podcast listening app to join us.